Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. We uh, missed you last weekend. Um, it was great seeing our uh, grandson, Charlie, and his parents, <laughs> Andrew and Caitlin. I think there's, um, I don't know, a million plus people in Oklahoma, and I think there's 10 trillion mosquitoes in, in Oklahoma, and we were kissed by a lot of them. Um, and also, I heard really good reports about the visit of the hunts here, and we rejoice in that. We rejoice in the faithful ministry of the Word of God, whoever does it and wherever it's done. Um, today, we're back in Romans. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 4 and verses 1 through 12. I thought I had a bulletin. Oh, well. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And let me just remind you of the ground that we've covered so far. If you think about it, the book of Romans is the Apostle Paul's presentation and defense of the biblical gospel, which really is summarized in the uh, Latin phrase from the Reformation, sola fide, um, which means faith alone. The Apostle Paul has been pointing out, especially in chapter 3, um, that our, our justification, that is our right standing before God, our being declared righteous by the judge of all the earth. Oh, thanks, Judah. Beautiful bulletins today, huh? Our justification is by, by faith alone. In fact, as we just sang, faith alone in Christ alone, because it's in Christ that uh, we get the righteousness of God. And on his side, Christ is the one who took uh, the punishment of God that we deserved. He, he um, emptied the cup of the wrath of God in our behalf. So in uh, the first three chapters of Romans, Paul emphasizes how we're all under the wrath of God. We're all without excuse. Uh, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's, not, there's none good, not even one. And uh, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God, but God in his rich mercy and grace has provided a way for sinners like us to be saved. And uh, that way is through Christ, and uh, it's through faith alone. It's apart from anything that we would do. It's only because of God's free, sovereign grace and mercy that sinners like us who deserve hell, who deserve to be under the wrath of God forever, are instead declared righteous in God's sight. Well, as we come to chapter 4, Paul uh, anticipates an objection either from Jews themselves or people who were aware of uh, what the, the Jews in Paul's time were saying, and that has to do with, with Abraham. And so uh, Paul presents um, the, the prophet and forebear of the Jewish nation and forebear of all believers everywhere, Abraham, as an example 
of sola fide, justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, then he's also going to appeal to David, and uh, then he's going to show, therefore, uh, who gets to enjoy these blessings that uh, Abraham and David enjoyed as believers. So that's where we're going today. It's more of the same in terms of sola fide, but we're going to be concentrating on these two Old Testament examples, uh, that being Abraham and David. So in verses 1 through 5, we have Abraham's justification. Abraham's justification. So here is this question or objection that Paul anticipates in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? And Abraham, of course, was the Jews' forefather. The Jews took a lot of pride in the fact that they were Abraham's descendants and Abraham was their father. And uh, as Christians, we, we already know the end of the story. That's the thing. We, we already know where Paul's headed. We understand the idea of Abraham. We understand that he's the father of all the faithful. But uh, that was not what many of the Jews, in fact, the prevailing opinion of the Jews was in the first century. They, they believed that Abraham was a righteous man. They thought that uh, Abraham was a paragon of righteousness and that he somehow earned favor with God by his righteousness. In fact, there's a couple of Jewish writings from the time that I'd like to read to you from. One is the prayer of Manasseh. And in the prayer of Manasseh, we read, Thou, O Lord, God of the righteous, hast not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against thee, but thou hast appointed repentance for me, who am a sinner. Or there's the book of Jubilees, another piece of Jewish writing, which says, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. That was the idea of Abraham. Not Abraham uh, our forefather, in terms of believing in the Lord and being justified by grace alone through faith alone. No, he was Abraham the righteous, uh, the one who did not sin, the one who is well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. So it gave them cause to beat their breast as offspring of Abraham. So that's what probably gives rise to this question. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? David is, uh, excuse me, Paul is going right for the jugular in terms of an objection to this Christian doctrine, the gospel, 
of justification by grace alone through faith alone. What about Abraham? And then he continues in verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, and remember, that is what is at stake. He has already told us in chapter 3 and verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And he's already said in verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, which means apart from anything that anyone would ever do in obedience to God's commandments. We're justified, we're declared righteous in the sight of God apart from anything we do, even Father Abraham. And Paul says, for if Abraham was justified by works, like a lot of people assumed, then he has something to boast about. But then Paul shuts down the argument before it really gets started, but not before God. But not before God. No justified sinner including Abraham, has any reason, any ground for boasting before God. That's what grace does. Grace shuts the mouth of the boaster. So that's the argument. That's the objection. Uh, Paul now appeals to the Old Testament scriptures because that's what he's been doing throughout the book of Romans, he's uh, told us back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written in the Old Testament. And in this case, in this case, Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. And uh, he is also written in chapter 3 and verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, what he's preaching, what he's declaring, what he's setting forth before the believers in Rome and us is not something entirely new. This is the same gospel that was declared in the Old Testament. And it's not just that the Old Testament was anticipating the coming of the gospel. But what Paul is going to make very plain is that believers in the Old Testament, including Abraham, including David, and every other believer, believers in the Old Testament were saved, get this, in exactly the same way and on the same basis that believers like us are saved. Again, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's always been that way. 
It's not that believers in the Old Testament earned their salvation by keeping the law. The law directed their attention to a coming Savior, and they put their faith in the Redeemer of Israel, and they had that Redeemer presented to them in the form of types and shadows. But it was in the Redeemer of Israel that their faith rested. So we're all saved through the same means and on the same basis. They had faith in Jesus just like we do. It's just that their, their conception of Jesus wasn't as fleshed out and clear as ours is because we're post-incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection. But it was the same Jesus who saved Abraham, uh, who also saves us. But anyway... That's why Paul begins verse 3 by saying, for what does the scripture say? This is more of the same, appealing to the Old Testament to show that this gospel that Paul himself was preaching was nothing new. So what does the scripture say? Well, in chapter 15 and verse, in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, the scripture says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul says, that's all I'm saying to you now. So what does Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 mean? Because after all, the Jews who thought that Abraham was a righteous man and didn't need repentance, the Jews believed Genesis 15 6. But they didn't get it. They didn't understand its implications. So we're going to do a bit of a deep dive here because it's really important to understand what uh, Moses, as the Holy Spirit was moving him to write Genesis, meant and what uh, Paul meant by appealing to Genesis 15.6. Why does Genesis 15.6 prove the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And he believed the Lord, we're told. That doesn't mean that he just believed in the Lord, as in he believed in the Lord's existence. Because James, in James chapter 2 and verse 19, says that even the demons believe in the Lord... And they tremble. It's not an intellectual assent to facts, but it is a personal trust in the Lord himself. That's the significance of Moses' terminology. And Abraham believed the Lord. And then the second half of the sentence, and he, that is the Lord, and the Lord counted it to Abraham as righteousness. And that's the Hebrew word kashab. It's a very, very important concept. And we're going to come back to this in more detail because of the Greek word that Paul uses. But for now, that word kashab that's translated counted it to him, 
counted it to. It, it means what a person considered by himself is not or does not have, but is reckoned, held, or regarded to be or to have. And that's by way of commentator William Hendrickson. I'll, I'll read that again. This, this word, counted it to him, is what a person considered by himself is not or does not have, but is reckoned, held, or regarded to be or to have. And this word, kashab, is used a lot in the Old Testament, um, at least 23 times in this sense of counted, count, counting. But there's two that I think are really illustrative of the meaning here that Paul has in mind in Romans 4 as he calls out Genesis 15 and verse 6. So one of them is Genesis 38 and verse 15. Genesis 38 and verse 15. And uh, the context is, is Judah and um, he's not going to recognize his daughter-in-law Tamar. So in Genesis 38 and verse 15, we read, when Judah saw her, that is Tamar, he thought, and that's the word, kashab, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. So think of how Moses is using this word. Judah thought, he, he reckoned her to be, he counted her as, regarded her to be a prostitute, even though she's, she's not. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 13. The story of Hannah. And you remember the background? Uh, Hannah longed for a child. She was praying for a child. And so she was uh, in the tabernacle praying. And in 1 Samuel 1.13 we read, Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be. And that's our word, kashab. Eli took her to be a drunken woman. So once again, Eli reckoned Hannah to be, counted her as, regarded her to be a drunken woman. Even though she's not a drunken woman, that's how Eli took her to be. Now, in these two examples, we have men who are basically deceived. They're, they're mistaken. They're believing something that's not true. But where this word kashab is at its heart is this, this reckoning, this imputing, this accounting to somebody's account, something that doesn't of right belong to them. So what Judah 
ended up doing by way of being mistaken and Eli as well, God does not because he's mistaken, not because he's deceived, not because he's being led astray, but he does it intentionally by his grace. God reckons us, counts us, regards us as righteous. That's what he did for Abraham. Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Even though Abraham was not righteous, he was, after all, from Ur of the Chaldeans. And somebody who is born and raised and lived among the Chaldeans does what the Chaldeans do. And we know from Abraham's life, even as a believer, that he was not righteous in terms of being um, without sin because he lied about Sarah, his wife, and he was weak in terms of his courage. He wasn't sinless. He was not righteous in and of himself. He did not have justifying righteousness in himself. But he believed the Lord. He trusted in the Lord. And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So where does Paul go with this? Look at verse 4. Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a guilt, as a, a gift, but as his due. So this is now the second time in Romans chapter 4 that Paul uses this word, counted. And we've seen the, um, the Hebrew word from Genesis 15 and verse 6, it means the same thing. Do you know that in Romans chapter 4, this word is used 11 times? times. He, he, we've already seen it twice. Verse 3, counted it to him as righteousness. Verse 4, counted. Verse 5, counted. Verse 6, counts. Verse 8, count. Verse 9, counted. Verse 10, counted. Verse 11, counted. And then Dave read verses, uh, verses 20. We've read the whole chapter, but Verses 22 and 23, counted, counted, counted. This word counted is a very important word in the book of Romans, in chapter 4, and in understanding the gospel. It's a very important word. So the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, uh, once again, kashab. The Greek word that Paul uses here in Romans is the word logizomai, logizomai. And it's an accounting term. So now we're right up Holly's alley. Accounting. And we're talking debits and credits. And it means logizomai to put into one's account or to charge one's account. 
So reading back into verse 3, which cites Genesis 15 and verse 6, God credited Abraham with righteousness. It was not Abraham's due. It was a gift from God. That's what Paul is driving at in verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And this is consistent with the language in Genesis 15.6. So here's an illustration to understand this, this counting that shows up over and over again in Romans chapter 4 that helps us to understand justification. Suppose you're checking your account, your checking account, and you notice a $1,000 credit shows up in your checking account one day. Well, if that $1,000 comes from your employer and you recognize it as the amount of your paycheck, then that's your wage. That's your due. And, and when you see it show up in your account, I don't think you call your employer and say, wow, thank you so much. I saw $1,000 show up in my checking account. You're so gracious and kind. I've never done that. I doubt you've done that. I, I look at my account. I see what I'm expecting. And after all of the taxes and withholdings, it's $725.36. Just, just. But I've never thought of calling the Navy or whoever, Uncle Sam, and thanking them for my pay because it's my wage. There's a sense in which that's what I have coming. I've earned it. Because even Jesus said the worker is worthy of his wages. But now let's say that the same amount of money, so you look up in your checking account and you see $1,000, so it's the same amount of money that you would have been expecting in your paycheck, but it's not from your employer. And you, you find out that it's, it's from a distant relative. And that distant relative, it turns out, has heard that you're experiencing some challenges right now. And their, their heart was just drawn to you. There, there's nothing that you deserved to get that money. You didn't even ask them for it. You didn't go through a series of steps to earn it. It just showed up unasked, unexpected, undeserved. There it is. Now, what's interesting is in both cases, you're $1,000 richer. But in the first case, it was your due. You earned it. In the second case, it was a free gift. You didn't earn it. That's what Paul says in verse 4. And this is not just a theory. Paul says this is how God justifies sinners. It is a free gift. He counts righteousness to us. He, he credits our account 
with righteousness. And it's the very righteousness of God, by the way. It's the righteousness of God that he graciously gives. It's the righteousness of God that actually passes muster in terms of the judgment of God. And Paul has already said that it's the righteousness of God that the gospel itself reveals. And he said in chapter 3 that... Um, the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God, verse 22, that is received through faith. His righteousness, verse 26, God credits our account, as it were, with the very righteousness of God as a gift. Notice the stunning implication of this, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, and in the context, does not work for his justification. To the one who does not work, but believes in him, trusts in the Lord, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And you'll notice what Paul is doing in verse 5. He's expanding the scope from just Abraham to others. But what a statement. The God of the Bible, the God who is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of the gospel justifies the ungodly. Do you hear that? That is so mind-blowingly unique. This isn't the way that people think. This isn't the way that humanity operates. Don't you know, haven't you heard, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. The Bible says, ah, surprise, surprise. That might be the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of man, but the wisdom of God makes the wisdom of man look foolish. So guess what God does? God justifies the ungodly, including, by the way, Father Abraham. Abraham was an ungodly man in and of himself. But God justified him as a gift of his grace and he counted to Abraham as his own, the very righteousness of God. And that's what God does for everyone who believes. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. But now... Paul's going to go on in his argument to show that Abraham isn't the only example in the Old Testament of sola fide or faith alone. So now we see in the second place David's testimony. David's testimony, verses 6 through 8. So in verse 6, just as David 
also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Then he's going to quote from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. So here, here's Paul, man. He's coming into it, both guns blazing. He's got two big old guns at his hip, just firing away at every objection, every argument against the gospel of God's grace. First, he appeals to Abraham, Father Abraham. Now, who does he appeal to but David, the beloved king of Israel, the man whose heart was like God's own heart, God said, the man from whose loins would descend the Messiah himself, beloved King David. David's also a great example of justification by faith alone. So in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, which Paul cites here in Romans 4, verses 7 and 8, um, this is a psalm, Psalm 32, that's a companion psalm with Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's song of repentance after the, the terrible story of his adultery with Bathsheba and then his conspiring to have Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed. And you can read the sordid details of David's story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So that's Psalm 51, David's repentance. David says, against you and you alone, Lord, have I sinned and done this wicked thing. And he says things like, you would be just if you just condemned me. But in Psalm 32, we read of David's forgiveness. So Psalm 51 comes first, and then Psalm 32 follows at some point later on in David's experience. In fact, if you look in Psalm 32 for a minute, Psalm 32, oh, there's my bulletin. So verses 1 and 2, we've already seen in Romans 4, verses 7 and 8. Um, David in verses 3 through 5 says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted, a day, wasted away through my groaning all day long. David was going through a period of time when he was covering up his sin. He was hiding his sin. He was not confessing his sin. And because he was a child of God and God would not let him alone, David was experiencing these psychosomatic symptoms. My bones wasted away. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me with conviction. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then finally, in conjunction with the prophet Nathan, whom God sent to David and said, you are the man. David says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. 
I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So Psalm 32 is David's song or anthem of forgiveness. And notice what David writes in verses 1 and 2 regarding his forgiveness. There's three parallel expressions. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. By the way, blessed means basically happy. So David is saying, here is the way to true happiness. Happy, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. There's that word count again. And in whose spirit there is no deceit, which Paul doesn't cite in Romans chapter 4. So notice, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Uh, Transgression emphasizes the reality that our sin is against God's law. It's a violation of God's law. We're we're lawbreakers. We're transgressors before God. But God forgives our sins. And the prophet Jeremiah says that when God forgives us, he remembers our transgressions and our sins no more. He remembers them no more. And that doesn't mean that he absolutely forgets because he knows everything. He knows all things. He's omniscient. But he forgets them in terms of his relationship with us. He, He doesn't hold them against us. He doesn't keep them on our account. The ledger sheet is is free. We're forgiven. Then David says, whose sin is covered. And what's, what's interesting is that he also talked about a covering in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. In other words, I did not continue to cover up my sin, to hide my sin. But this covering in verse 1, it's the same word, it's the same general idea, but God in covering our sin, he doesn't cover them up, he blots them out. And For those of us who use, well, we all use computers. But when we blot something out in Microsoft Word or whatever, what do we do? We select and we delete. That's what David is saying. That's what God does. He deletes our sin. He erases our sin. And then in verse 2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. In and of ourselves, by all rights, we are sinners, we have committed iniquity, and the Lord should count iniquity against us. By all rights, by by justice, with no grace. But God graciously counts 
no iniquity against those whose transgression is forgiven. And so the Apostle Paul appeals to the experience of David as a parallel spiritual experience to Abraham. Abraham believed God and he counted it to him for righteousness. And here David is saying, in the experience of a justified believer, in the experience of a converted person, in confessing our sin, we're actually appealing to the same grace and mercy of God. And God forgives us on the same ground. He counts against us no iniquity. So, back to Romans chapter 4. We have the example of Abraham. We have the testimony of David. Now, thirdly and finally, those who are blessed with Abraham, verses 9 through 12. Those who are blessed with Abraham. Notice verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, the, the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised, non-Jews, Gentiles? And here's the key to Paul's thinking. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And as we've already tried to clarify based on uh, Romans chapter 3, it's not that faith in and of itself is justifying righteousness. Do you get the point? It's not that faith itself is the righteousness of God. It's not that faith itself by itself cancels out our guilt, takes the place of obedience to God's law. But it's because of what faith apprehends. It's because of the one in whom faith trusts. Once again, the righteousness of God in chapter 3 and verse 21. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And in verse 24 or 25, Jesus Christ was put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Do you see that? Faith receives Jesus. In Jesus is the righteousness of God. In Jesus is all that we need to be reconciled to God, to be declared righteous in God's sight. It's, it's Jesus. Faith is just the empty hand that receives that free gift. And if you want to go back to our earlier illustration of um, uh, accounting and the money showing up in your checking account as, as a gift, well, nowadays we have Venmo and we have Zelle and uh, Sometimes somebody might give you a gift of money through Venmo or Zelle. And if so, you're either going to get a text message, 
or you're going to get an email message. And basically what you do is you click accept. And then the software behind the scenes takes the money out of the giver's account and it gets credited to your account through your bank. And all you did is point and click accept. That's faith. If somebody gifts you a million dollars, and I think that's well above the limit of Venmo, but if somebody gifts you a million dollars and you know you don't deserve it and all you do is click accept, there's no boasting for you. So once again, Paul says, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Verse 10, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Because the Jews put a lot of stock in their circumcision. At least the guys did. And then Paul answers his own question here. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In fact, if you keep your finger here and you look back in Genesis real quickly, Genesis chapter 15, and in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, Here's the passage that Paul has been citing. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. But then if you look forward into chapter 17 and verses 24 and 25, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In verse 25, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. That's at least 13 years. It's probably much longer than that, but it's at least 13 years. So I just want it to be clear in your minds, the chronology of events here, Paul was declared righteous by God on the basis of the grace of God through faith, Genesis 15 and verse 6, well be before Abraham obeyed God in the covenant of circumcision in Genesis chapter 15. So what's Paul's conclusion? The conclusion is circumcision had nothing to do with Abraham's justification. Any works of the law that anyone would do has nothing to do with your justification. Our justification is through faith alone apart from our works. And if that's true, then what's the purpose or what was the purpose of Abraham's circumcision? Paul answers that question, the second half of verse 11. The purpose 
was to make Abraham the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And here we are. Here we are. We're included in this. Everyone who has ever believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and been saved by God's grace, like Abraham, he's our father. And then notice verse 12, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that that our father Abram had before he was circumcised. And so there in verse 12, Paul is saying, it's not the right of circumcision itself that is of any value, but it's the circumcision of the heart. And so believers in the old covenant who had the faith of Abraham in Yahweh, and they subjected themselves, again, at least the men, to the rite of circumcision, that rite of circumcision had a correspondence to their circumcised heart. They were circumcised in the flesh, but they were also circumcised in their hearts. They were Israelites indeed, in whom there is no guile. And Paul is saying to Gentiles as well as to believing Jews, Abraham is the father of us all. That's that's his point. And so what do we say to these things? What What are some brief takeaways? I want to say something briefly to both believers and to unbelievers. To to believers. To believers, remember Paul's words here and remember David's words in Psalm 32 and see how tightly connected justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone is to our ongoing forgiveness as believers. There's David as a believer in the Old Covenant falling big time, sinning terrible sins. And there's no candy coating it. They were terrible sins. The thing that David did displeased the Lord. David was worthy of going to hell because of those sins and more. And what did he do? He confessed his sins to the Lord. And the Lord did not count his transgression against him. That's what the Apostle John means when he tells us as believers, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous. And when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of his grace, because of Jesus, 
because of the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. The same grace of God that justified you at your conversion, brother and sister, is the same grace of God that provides the ground and the basis for your forgiveness as a believer when you sin. That's why what we're seeing here from Paul and why it's worth it for us to do this spade work, to uh, use our minds and to understand these words that Paul uses, it needs to be clear in our minds that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Because there's a Pharisee in the breast of every one of us that wants to begin by grace and to be perfected according to the flesh. And that leads to bondage, it leads to doubt, it leads to anger and frustration, but the joy of the Lord and true freedom comes from embracing the gospel of God's free grace. And that's why I say to you, if you're an unbeliever, God knows your heart. I can't. God knows your heart better than you do, actually. But this is why the gospel is good news. Because if you go to a Mormon church, or if you go to a Catholic church, or you listen to the latest self-help guru on YouTube, or wherever you turn, you're always going to hear some form of the message of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be a better person. Christianity is the only, the only message that says, not only don't do that, but you can't do that. No matter how hard you try and how long you persevere in pulling yourselves up by your own bootstraps for self-betterment and self-improvement, you will never, ever, ever achieve the righteousness of God. The message of the Bible is just stop the madness and just humble yourself and come to Jesus Christ, the Savior of all of God's people and just say, Lord, I'm just a sinner. I know that I am. I know that you know that I am. I, I see these things that I've done in my life and my conscience convicts me they're wrong. And I've tried to turn over a new leaf time and time again, and there's no more leaves for me to turn over. Lord, I cast myself at your feet. I trust in your mercy. Lord, just forgive me. Just receive me. Because I, I'm putting my trust in you. That's the message of the gospel. May the Lord draw many sinners to himself today. Let's pray.